Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kisson. And this is a show for you if you're bored with people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our fantastic guest this week is a former Conservative MP and a columnist for The Times here in London, Matthew Paris. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hello, hello. It is so good to have you here. Let's get straight into it. Normally we get the guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, but I think most people will know who you are. It will all come out. It will all come <laughs> out in, in the end. Um, as I was saying to you before we started the interviews, one of the things we try to do is to talk to people from across the political spectrum who may not be conventional for the position that they occupy. So we've had a lot of lefty Brexiteers on the show, and you are a right of centre Remainer. So uh, tell us what that's like at the moment. Well, I'm not a I'm not a far right person. <laughs> I, um, Get that out there, yeah. You're not Tommy Robinson. <laughs> no. Fantastic. I, I'm I'm right of centre, and there are actually an awful lot of right of centre people in Britain who uh, don't like the idea of leaving the European Union. We we are the kind of forgotten people there, and there are millions of us. The three million people voted Conservative who also voted to remain. So I don't feel lonely in, in any way, but I do feel I'm speaking up for a section of uh, the British electorate that has not really been heard. And that's why we wanted to have you on the show. So what is the right of centre argument against Brexit? It's basically conservatism with a small c, leave things alone unless there's something terribly wrong with them. <laughs> uh, we've been in the European Union since, when is it, 1974, three, I can't remember. Um, our economy has been growing fast in recent years alongside the economies of the rest of the European Union. We're still in control of our own destiny. The European Union's project for a sort of European superstate is more or less dead now. I'm not convinced the European Union has a secure future, but let's just leave well enough alone. Uh, we, we, I'm quite sure we have an insecure future outside the EU. So what I can't do, and lots of my leave readers are always hitting me with this question, you know why? Okay, you said you said why you don't want to leave, but what's what's so great about the European Union? Tell us what you believe in, because we believe in something. We believe in independence. We believe in taking back control. We believe in a separate destiny for the United Kingdom. What do you believe in about Europe? I don't believe in anything about Europe. I just believe that it's chugging along okay, and we're okay. And to take this mad step into into oblivion as far as uh, as for all we know it's just a very stupid thing to do it's always hard to be the skeptical one the one who thinks let's not do this when there isn't anything else in particular that you do want to do but i say let's not do this now people always talk about no deal and they always use terms like crashing out and all the rest of it and i I still don't know what would no deal mean for this country if on the 31st of October we decide to leave without a deal. What are the long-term implications of that? Well, the, the immediate consequence of leaving without a deal is that we would then have to negotiate a deal uh, because we have to have an arrangement with uh, all the countries around us of one kind or another. So any idea uh, that we're not going to have a deal is is for the birds. The only question is, do we 
try and get a satisfactory deal before we leave, or do we just leave and then put ourselves in the position of a supplicant to the European Union and try to get the best deal we can? The immediate effect of leaving without a deal would be, I think, a, a bit of a stock market crash. Um, it, it would be a substantial depreciation in the value of the pound, and it would be a, an immediate contraction of our economy. We, we could weather that. Um, after four or five years, we would get used to being a country that wasn't in a trading block with anybody else. We'd all be a bit poorer and we'd remain a bit poorer. We'd have a bit less influence and we'd remain with a bit less influence. But the sun would continue to rise and set every day and not many people would die. It would just be a, a bit shit, really. <laughs> 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 well, that, that, it's an, interesting that you are, you, you're quite moderate on both sides, I, mm. I would say. Just to interrupt, that just reminded me so much of one of my parents' evening interviews with my dad <laughs> taking me along. Sorry, carry on. There, there's a triggering moment for Francis <laughs> yeah. right there. Uh, but you, you're quite moderate on it. Uh, so I'm curious what you make, because I, as a Remainer, uh, or I, I try not to call myself a Remainer. I voted Remainer. I haven't made it into my identity. Um, <laughs> is... I'm struggling to see how this language that you see from people like David Lammy about how everyone who's who's voted leave is a Nazi or the ERG are Nazis or worse than Nazis. I, I don't see how th that extremism helps. Uh, what do you make of, of the language that we now use when talking about these things? I've, I've learned, uh, sometimes to my cost, I, I have learned that you need to be very careful what you say about people who voted leave. Lots of my friends voted leave. Lots of very decent people voted leave. Lots of people who are, are not racists or xenophobes or anything else uh, voted leave. On the other hand, quite a lot of people who are racists and are xenophobes also voted leave. On the whole, I would uh, stand back from trying to characterise leave voters in the United Kingdom with any overall generalised characterization. They're just 17 million odd different people, each with his or her own story. Where I would go in hard is on the leadership of that campaign and on the politicians. Most of the politicians leading that campaign know that it's going to make us poorer, but have not said so. These are, in the age-old way of politicians, people who are simply capitalising on the hopes and fears of a large electorate who don't know as much about it as they do. It's a sort of confidence trick. They are building their careers on building up hopes and building up fears that they, the hopes they know will not be justified and, 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 and the fears are groundless. So I, I, I dislike and am prepared to vilify the leadership of the Leave campaign. But as for the voters themselves, they are as many and various as are all around us. So you're saying, so in particular, what would your specific criticisms be of a figure like Nigel Farage? Because on the one hand, you could say that in many ways, one of the most talented politicians of his generation with what he's achieved. Well, if, if, if by talent you mean the, the ability to whip the mob up and get them on your side. Yes, he's talented. I could name you a lot of other politicians through <laughs> history who were talented in that sense. But uh, he, he's the man uh, behind the breaking point 
poster, do you remember, which suggested hordes of people who are definitely not white trying to get into the United Kingdom? What, what is that if it's not whipping up popular fears? He's one of the people that pretended that Turkey was likely to join the European Union in the, in the foreseeable future. He knows that isn't true. It isn't difficult to get votes by making people afraid of other people. And I have no neither sympathy nor even grudging admiration for people who, who do that. Well, let me put the, the counterpoint to you on that, because uh, a, a lot of the people that we've spoken to, many academics, experts, uh, some people from the left, some people from the right, one of the things they've talked about is that the Brexit vote was to some extent driven by people's concerns about immigration, which I would argue as an immigrant in this country were quite legitimate given the labor boom that we saw in immigration and given the fact that while we are in the EU, we cannot control that part of our destiny. You said we control our destiny, but that is a part of our destiny that we absolutely do not control, right? Mm. We do not control the number of people who come here no. or who comes here. No. We don't have any control over that. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I came to this country in 1995, like 3% of the British public thought immigration was a major issue. By the mid, uh, not, what is it, tens? Yeah, uh, yeah mm. by the mid tens. It's a weird, it's a weird yeah. name. Mm. By the mid tens, it was almost 50% yeah. because the numbers of people. So, yeah, had, something had happened. Something yeah. had yeah. happened, right? Yeah. So you could argue that Nigel Farage, rather than whipping up the mob, he was responding to the concerns of ordinary people. Uh, about the levels of immigration, which were not being heard in Westminster at the time. I think that's fair to say, isn't it? Yeah. The difference between whipping up and responding uh, is, is actually a, rather a nuanced thing mm. uh, because we are all in echo chambers and you can amplify and re-echo to people what you hear from them or, or you can try and explain the, the true position. But you are absolutely right that there was widespread anxiety about the numbers of people coming to Britain, perhaps the then Labour government should have taken the option that was open to them to control the numbers coming from, from the EU. On the other hand, those people who did exploit those fears, and, and there is also incipient racism, which I shall not allow you to overlook, people who did exploit that those fears knew very well that probably the bulk of the immigrants that, that we have and are getting, we, we need. And that even after taking back control, we probably wouldn't enormously reduce the number of immigrants coming here. But, but as I say, I, I won't let you get away with the idea that concern about immigration has nothing to do with racism. It, 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 it does. Uh, all across the part of England that was my constituency, the beautiful Derbyshire Dales in the, in the Peak District, there, there are almost nobody but white people there. In fact, I, I remember canvassing a doorstep, uh, canvassing on the doorstep, a, a man uh, in, a, in a very, very um, leafy sort of uh, suburb uh, who was worried. He said, black people are flooding into this country. They're all over the place. They're everywhere. I said, well, well I don't think there's any, any black people actually around here. And he said, there's one in Froggart, uh, Froggart <laughs> being a place nearby. Yeah. Um, but that, that isn't the same. As, as, as concern about immigration. And I, I, I have to say that if this immigration had been coming from the United States or Canada or white Australia, you wouldn't have had the anxiety or anger about it that you did. 
there is a streak of racism in all of us. Hmm. And there's a very strong streak of racism in the in the British people as there is in almost every people. Hey, I'm Russian, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But, but actually, I, I would say to you that, well, I think you're right that broadly speaking, everyone has an element, everyone can be potentially racist. This is one of the most open, tolerant and welcoming countries in the world, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it's not always a very competitive field. Then, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly not when my country is involved. But uh, I, I just want to explore this point a little bit because I understand what you say. Yeah. I think it's undoubtedly true that there are some people who are racist and some of those people would have voted leave on the basis that it would stop black people coming to, yes. to your yeah. constituency, even though black people don't come from the EU. But anyway, uh, there may have been people like that, right? Yeah, but some of those Bulgarians are quite sun. <laughs> <laughs> like me, like me. Yes, yeah, like, like me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I don't consider myself black necessarily, but uh, it's 2018. Maybe I should come out as, as black next year. <laughs> yeah, you can identify as yeah. it. Why not? Why not, right? Uh, but on the immigration point, the, the, the angle that I'm getting at is the mainstream politicians were not listening to people about immigration. Mm. And anyone who, I, I remember this very well, anyone in, in the mid-tens, as I keep awkwardly saying, who expressed any concern about immigration was immediately dismissed as being racist, which I think mm. is an unfair conflation. Mm. You can be for different levels of immigration without hating the people who are coming. You may feel that it's, it's hampering integration in this country. You may feel that it's hampering community cohesion in this country. You may just feel like we've had a lot of immigration. It's time to let everybody kind of settle down and then we can open up the, the door again. So if ordinary people aren't listening, if ordinary politicians in the mainstream aren't listening, is it not the job of someone like Nigel Farage to come along and upset things, upset the apple cart because ordinary people aren't having their voices heard? Well, you can hear people's voices. That's one thing. And you can do what they ask you to do. And, and that's another. And, and we all did hear the voices of people who felt that immigration was too high. Mm. And David Cameron certainly heard those voices. And when he went for his renegotiation with the EU, he tried really hard to get some kind of break on immigration. And you can blame Angela Merkel. Uh, I could blame Angela Merkel for not giving him something on that because she should have, the EU should have, and that might have stopped all this fuss. But in the end, we can talk as the media do constantly and as, about pol as politicians do constantly, talk about listening to people which is one thing. But in the end, we have to talk about what it is that they're saying, whether they're right, and whether we want to do what they're asking us, mm. uh, which is why I am a qualified believer in democracy. But I think it can have some very undesirable outcomes. I mean, the whole population might be saying we want to go to the moon. And politicians might say, sorry, sorry, but that's not on. Then you would say, ah, but you're not listening to the people. You're not listening to them. They're saying they want to go to the moon. You're not listening. I am listening. I hear they want to go to the moon. Unfortunately, it is not feasible. Mm. Uh, you've, got, you've got to be honest with people. Mm. And so we're in this situation right now where it's political chaos, I think is fair to say. Yes. Where we're at a crisis point. What do we need to do? How can we possibly solve this? What are the options? Well, if you want a very general, long-term yeah. answer, I, I, I think we've probably got to smash the two-party system mm -hmm. because both the parties that, that we've got are making a terrific mess of it. And I don't quite see how the Labour Party is going to come back from this. And I certainly don't see how my own party, the Conservative Party, is going to come back from it. And for that, we might have to move 
from a first-past-the-post system to something more proportional, which gave smaller chances a, a, a chance to breathe. But in the immediate, well, what we've got to do is stop Brexit. Uh, I, I still think we can, and I still think there's a decent chance that we will. But what do you mean by stopping Brexit? I mean, and also, how, how would you achieve that? Is it by a, a second referendum? Yes. Yeah, it would be by a second referendum. It's got to be by a second referendum. You can say, as Jeremy Corbyn does, it's got to be or should be by a general election. Fine, have a general election. But in the end, I want a government that wants us to leave. And I don't think any government... I want a government that wants us to stay. And I oh, don't... Something slipped out there, Matthew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something... That'll be the clip that we use. We're just going to take that three seconds yes. and put it out on the internet. Yeah. And that will define your career. For... Yeah, thanks so much. Matthew Paris has his uh, turnaround moment. That'll be, the, that'll be the slogan. Yeah, yeah. I did an interview with The Spectator ages ago, a podcast, and um, so someone said, so you're saying we're all racists. Everyone's racist, are you? And I said, yes. And <laughs> from now on, all the people that troll me on, uh, on, on online commentary say Matthew Paris believes we're all racist. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I want a government that keeps us in the European Union. I don't think any government could or should do that without getting endorsement from the people. I want a second referendum, therefore, because we've had a referendum. It said leave. And if we're not to leave, we've got to ask the people their permission to change our minds. What if they don't give it? Uh, then, we, well, then we leave. I mean, every, every nation has a right to self-harm. Uh, I, I think my argument would be that when we said leave, uh, as by a slim majority, mm. I don't think we had really thought through or knew or been informed of just what that was going to mean and how difficult it was going to prove. We have been informed of that. We do know if we still say leave, if we still say, well, we're prepared to crash out without a deal and take our chances, it is a democracy. We just have to accept that. And what, what would you say to those people who say what you are wishing to do with a second referendum is undemocratic and you're essentially ignoring my voice simply because it is not palatable or mainstream? Well, I would say I'm not ignoring your voice. You can vote in the second referendum and let's see how many people vote how many ways. <laughs> if you take a single snapshot of public opinion in 2016, it won't be long until that's four years ago. Mm. You can't then say uh, it, it, you, you can never go against that snapshot. Opinions change. Mm. And do you think it's going to change as well, depending on who uh, the Conservative Party elect to be their leader? Do you think in terms of Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt? I should just say that we're recording this a couple yes. of weeks before the yeah. outcome, yeah. but yeah. The, the video, as you know, will go out the day before. Yeah. Yes. So as people are watching it, we already know, or they already know, yeah. we don't know now. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of the leadership candidates? Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm not absolutely certain it's going to be Boris Johnson. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's the overwhelming likelihood is it will be Boris Johnson. But I do know the ordinary membership of the Conservative Party, the activists of whom I am one, <laughs> the least active activist <laughs> in the world. But... And uh, I know that they adore Boris. I know that they love hearing him speak. I know that you can sell out any dinner um, with, with a ticket that includes an after-dinner speech by Boris. But I do know also that there's hardly a Conservative member in the country who doesn't harbour a little bit of a doubt about whether he has the competence, the concentration, the command of detail and the personal trustworthiness to be <laughs> Prime Minister. And it may be that by the time you hear this, that seed of doubt may have grown. And I, I think Jeremy Hunt 
well, he's not mad, so uh, he, he has a chance. But, 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 but say it's Boris. Well, we've got to stop him. We've got to stop him leaving the, uh, uh, taking us out of the European Union without at least letting Parliament vote on it. And I believe they would vote not to. So how do you stop someone like Boris? Well, a vote of no confidence in the government. If there's time before the 31st of October, it's not clear there is, but there might be. Or there are various legislative measures you can vote for that would actually stop a government uh, t taking us out. But Parliament's got to, got to have the final say on this. When I, I read an article by by uh, by you a couple of weeks ago, where you were talking about n no deal, and what I found quite surprising is that you seemed almost resigned to your fate at that point, and you were saying, "I don't think we're going to be able to avoid a no deal." But I'm hearing you speak now, and you you seem quite positive about I, it. What's changed? I wasn't quite saying that, but I was saying it's not looking good. It's looking as though. Boris Johnson could take us out of the European Union without a deal. I could see it happening, and I'm, I'm alarmed about it. Uh, so to express alarm is not quite the same thing as to express despair. I don't, <laughs> I don't yet despair, but I am alarmed. It really could happen. I think there's a 30, 40, 50% chance that it's going to happen now. And as a result, far from hanging our heads and weeping, we have to fight all the harder. The question I was going to ask, coming back to the democratic point, and I think it is it's an important one. As I say, we've talked to, and I talked to a lot of people who, who voted Remain, but also a lot of people who voted Leave. And what they would be saying is, if you were sitting there now and, we'd ha and we had voted to Remain two, three years ago, mm. would you be as open to the idea of a second referendum as you are now? That's a very, very sharp question. Uh, firstly, if... We had narrowly voted to remain. I have absolutely no doubt that the Leave people wouldn't simply have packed their bags and gone home. They would be agitating. They might be agitating immediately for a refer another referendum, or they might be digging in for, for, for the long haul, as it were, and, and prepared to push for it in 5, 10, 15 years' time. Like the SNP did in Scotland, yes. essentially. And, and what would I say if there was a evidence that the European Union that we'd stayed in was not the European Union that we thought we were staying in, just as I would say that the terms of our departure are not the terms of departure we thought we were going to get. What would I say if public opinion in Britain had swung uh, fairly decisively against remaining in the European Union? I think I, I, think I would find it hard to resist the demand for a, another referendum. That's interesting. You say the opinion has swung. I wasn't aware that it had. Has opinion swung yes. in to, towards Remain? Yes, uh, but, but it, 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 it might be 52-48 the other way, perhaps 55-45 <laughs> perhaps the other way. But also pollsters haven't necessarily covered themselves in glory in recent years. No, 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 they haven't. But, but what we do know is, is this, and I don't mean this in an unkind way, but leavers are dying all, all the time. Leavers are much older than Remainers on, on balance. And, uh, and so the actual composition of the electoral base is changing and I, I think has changed. And how much responsibility does the Conservative government and the Conservative Party have to take for this whole debacle? Because part of me cynically thinks it was just a desperate attempt to save their own skin, really, wasn't it? And to keep the party together. It, it's, they have to take complete responsibility for this debacle. The La Labour Party would never have, have done it. Um, it's all the Conservative Party's fault. It, it, it's not so much a, a crime of, of selfishness or self-preservation. 
It's a crime of miscalculation. David Cameron wanted to dish the levers, and he felt that a, a, a renegotiation followed by a referendum would almost certainly result in a national vote to remain. So he was using a referendum as a weapon um, to, to clobber his opponents. If his calculation had proved right, as it did in Scotland, for instance, with their referendum, we would all be saying, oh, what a shrewd politician he was. Mm -hmm. But the lesson I draw from this, the mistake he made, anyone can miscalculate, he did. George Osborne didn't. George Osborne didn't want a referendum. You can miscalculate, but you should never use a referendum to achieve a result that you want unless you are prepared to run with the possibility that you don't get it. And the truth is that those who called this referendum believed that our membership of the European Union was extremely important to us and that leaving the European Union would be a very bad thing for the British people. Then they shouldn't have called a referendum because the British people might have opted for the very thing that they thought was very bad. You, sh you should never offer people a choice or give people the opportunity to take a course that you think would be a disaster. It's irresponsible. Mm. So you, uh, Peter Hitchens uh, described how much, when he came to do our show, how much he hated referendum. He called them nasty, dirty little things. I, yeah. I think he... Yeah, Ma Ma Margaret Thatcher used slightly politer language, <laughs> but, but she hated referendums too. Mm. I was going to ask, uh, you're someone who's on the outside of the political world now as a journalist, uh, but you are a for former MP. How... How do you feel? Would you rather be in there in the trenches stirring the pot from the inside or did, are you happier being on the outside and lobbing grenades in from the outside? I sometimes feel that it's, um, it's we of the media who are in the trenches um, lobbing the grenades and the poor bloody infantry are actually the, the MPs mm. who are really just being exploded with grenades landing all, all around them and, and, are, and are dazed. And, and miserable, and in some cases almost suicidal, and don't know what to do. So I'd rather be lobbing the grenades mm. as we are. But to answer your question perhaps slightly more seriously, ever since I left Parliament, ceased to be an MP, I have found that whatever voice I have gets a bigger audience and has more influence than it did when I was a backbench MP. I don't think any cabinet minister ever invited me to dinner when I was a backbench Tory MP. <laughs> when when you're a, a columnist in a national newspaper, you get those invitations all the time. That's fascinating, isn't it? So uh, do, you, do you think that essentially Parliament has little influence now because of this, uh, in terms of how this goes, or, or will it still have a big role to play? Well, I think the, the, the ordinary backbencher has always been a, a creature who's importance is exaggerated by the general public and has never had a huge amount of power and only ever gets very much power when there's a very fine balance between the two parties and a rebellion on one side or the other can shift the, the dial. But they do have that power now, uh, backbenchers, and I, I wish they, they would use it. Some of them are. There are some very brave people out there on both sides, actually, some very brave people, but too many of them are just kind of covering their heads while the, while the, while the shells land.
In many ways, though, you can't blame them because if you are a Remain MP and that's what you believe is best for this country and your constituency voted yeah. leave, I mean, you're in a horrible situation. You're in a very simple situation. You're going to lose your job. Um, so, so you have to be really brave to, to, to do that. I, I agree. Uh, a huge courage is called for and some have shown it. David Gork, uh, the uh, Justice Secretary, showed it and uh, was challenged in his constituency, but luckily survived. Uh, Dominic Grieve has been challenged. So far, he has survived. Plenty of others uh, know very well that they're not going to be reselected because their leave constituency associations disapprove of having a Remain MP. Yeah, it takes guts. Well, I, I listened to this, sorry, Francis, with, with the lever hat on because we've been talking to a lot of levers and I can hear exactly what they would be saying now, which is, look, we elect these people to represent us. How is it that you're sitting here as a former MP and saying basically the MP should ignore the will of his constituency and show courage by doing the opposite of what they want? MPs are not delegates. Mm. Uh, they are not presented with a list of things that their constituents want them to do, voted in on the basis of their promising to do those things and then absolutely obliged to do those things. I think the, th the things that you have in your manifesto the, the things which your party has promised, you, you have a solemn duty to look very hard and do your best to achieve what people want. But if you come to the conclusion that it can't be done or that it can't be done without grave damage to the very people who have sent you there, then your final responsibility is to, to your own judgment and to your own conscience. We have a system of representative democracy, not, not, a, not of uh, ma mandated manifesto commitments. Well, to me, that sounds like a very strong argument for a general election now, because we have two parties that ran on leaving the EU, uh, neither of which is, seems to pr be prepared to implement that. So should we not have a general election to, to elect a new parliament of, of people who better represent the public's wishes? I think, I think there's a very strong argument for a general election. Uh, basically, the government's completely buggered. <laughs> uh, not, uh, they can't do anything. They're, they're stuck. That's a technical term, I take yeah. it. But do you, do you know what this reminds me of? Watching Labour and Conservatives. I'm a, I'm a West Ham fan, and uh, sometimes we play at, at another team, and we're, we're both teams on the pitch are absolutely crap. And you just thought, I think yes. we should just knock this on the head yes. because you're both yeah. useless. <laughs> yes. And and it's come to the point. I mean, how much responsibility do do Labour have to take? They have an open goal against this government. In, in every possible way, and they still can't seem to capitalise well, on it. Because their leader doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't want to remain. Mm. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has always hated the European Union. If you're a proper Marxist, you ought to hate the <laughs> European <laughs> Union. It, it is a capitalist club. He's, he's absolutely right about that. Mm. Um, and so that right, right at the very top, Jeremy Corbyn, I think uh, Seamus Milne, who's an extremely powerful right-hand person, there's a little group there who, A, would like Britain not to be in the European Union. So when we have, as they believe, a socialist government, it'll be free to do the socialist things the EU wouldn't let it. And B, don't want to be blamed for the pain that would cause. Well, then it's perfect, isn't it? Get the Tories to take us out, blame the Tories, but we're out, we're out. And that's, that's, that's what a Marxist would want. Mm. So do you think he wants a general election or do, would he prefer us to leave and then trigger it? I think if you're 70, you probably want a general <laughs> election as, 
as quickly <laughs> as possible. Yeah. But I do think the result of that gen general election might be devastating, both for the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, and I just don't care anymore. I think probably devastation would be the beginning of reconstruction. I think that is so true, and I think you speak for a lot of people when you say that. I think there's so many people now who are so fed up of the two-party system because it doesn't represent what the people want. And uh, I think devastation is the right word because what you likely end up with certainly is a large Brexit party mm. block in Parliament. Uh, the Conservatives would and Labour would lose quite a lot of, of votes to them. And the Greens might get a few seats and, uh, you know, you might get uh, the Lib Dems might be making yes. a resurgence, yeah. right? Uh, how do, if we were to have a general election in the next six months, I mean, it's hard, obviously, to make these predictions because we don't even know who the leader of the Tory party is going to be. But uh, what do you think would happen? What, that devastation that you talk about, mm. what would it look like? I don't know. The, I think it's the socialist um, thinker, Marxist philosopher Gramsci, mm. um, who said that the old is dying, but the new is struggling to be, re to be born. And I think the new is struggling to, to be born. L look at the poor old Tiggers, the independent group, uh, for instance. It, it, it was a bit of a stillbirth, mm. that one. So I don't know what the consequence would be, but I, I think it probably would be the fragmentation of the two-party system that we have at the moment. And it is literally pointless to try to predict how that fragmentation would fragmentation would then pan out. But I think this thought is worth putting across. The next general election will not be a matter of whether YouGov is saying that this party is on 28%, this is on 26%, this is one at 19, oh, the Tories have gone up to 32. It won't be that sort of an election. It will be an election in which no, no one party predominates and no one party challenges. And in a first-past-the-post system such as we have, parties may get in on, on tiny votes, as the Labour Party just did squeak through the lowest vote in history, I think, in the Peterborough by-election. It will all be about electoral pacts. It will all be about tactical voting. It will all be about constituency by constituency, which party can split the vote of which other party. And in those circumstances, us pontificating or philosophizing over the overall result is, is futile. Guys, we wanted to take a moment just to say thank you to every single one of you who has supported us on Patreon, who sent us money through PayPal. We genuinely could not do the show without you. Having said that, we've now also found a corporate sponsor to sell out to. Absolutely, and it is the magazine The Week. And The Week is a news filter that pulls together the best articles from over 200 different sources, from publications such as The Telegraph, The FT, or for our one liberal snowflake fan, The Guardian. Exactly, and that's what they do. They do exactly what we do on the show, which is pull together information from different sides of the debate, the left and the right, so you don't find yourself stuck in an echo chamber and you can make your own mind up. And if you want to make the most of this offer, visit theweek.co.uk forward slash offer and use our special code, which is trigger for your six free issues of the week. What the week does is it allows you to read less and know more, which is going to appeal to people like Francis who can barely read. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's not just news as well. It's also sports. So if you're interested in football and you want to find out the latest details of the transfer window, they will have in, that in there as well, which won't appeal to Constantin because he's a virgin. But seriously, guys, we know that you've got busy lives. You're not going to be reading 200 articles a day. 
And what the week does is combine all those things in one easy package that you can look at once a week and know what's going on. Join thousands at Trust the Week as their essential curator news source. Try it for yourself with your first six issues completely free. To take advantage of this great offer, visit theweek.co.uk forward slash offer, enter our special code, which is of course Trigger, and you will get your first six issues of the week completely free. Now, we've talked a lot about Brexit and the European Union. Um, Someone made a very, very good point that one of the problems with Brexit is it stopped us from discussing other matters, which are equally, if not more important. The Conservative Party has always marketed itself as a party of law and order. We will, you know, invest in police. We'll have a strong police presence. I uh, still teach in East London and knife crime is out of control. How much responsibility do the Conservative Party have to take for this? I, I agree that law, law and order is important, and I agree your characterisation of the Conservative Party's stance. I, I, I don't think that simply paying police officers more or recruiting a, a lot more officers on the beat is the answer to the problem. I think the problem is one that any government, but particularly a Conservative government, is going to find difficult to tackle. I think there is a problem in the underlying competence of uh, the British uh, police force or forces. I don't think we should have so many constabularies. I, I, I think we should have a national police force. I think we should have a separate police force for dealing with internet crime, as we do, for instance, with the, with the transport police. I think we should look at the way we recruit police officers. Some should be paid more. Uh, some should be paid less. It, it should be easier to fail as a police officer and to lose your job as a police officer. A, 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 a huge problem of reforming, a, a, a huge campaign, a project of, of, of reforming our, our national police force should be a, a, a priority of any government. But I think the Conservative Party will tend just to slip into the, the old... Um, the the old tropes of we need more bobbies on the beat, we need another 2,000 policemen by next July or whatever, and it won't make any difference. On knife crime, I, I think knife crime is a, is a kind of fa- uh, fad. It's a kind of fashion. Now, it sounds, I know, uh, cruel. Uh, it sounds as though I'm trying to diminish the, the horror of knife crime. I'm not. Um, the horror is, I don't need to explain the horror. It's It's very real to everybody. But things do go in fashions, including horrible things go in fashions. And it is at the moment a bit like a virus, a bit like a disease sweeping through certain kinds of, of, of younger people. And I, I'm not sure that uh, simply flooding the streets with police officers is necessarily going to make much of a difference. I, I know it sounds feeble to say what we need is education, but what we do need to do is talk to people, talk to younger people, Try to, to try to communicate, try to engage, and uh, try to p- persuade. I, I'm not sure that law and order alone will solve this. Well, people, we've had different people on the show to talk about knife crime. One of the one of them is Dr. Tony Soul, who does a lot of work uh, and in that in that area and uh, bringing young kids from those backgrounds through to apply to Oxford and Cambridge, etc. Mm. And one of the points he made it was about the breakdown of the family. There's not enough mm. fathers in the home to. Uh, to teach young men, young boys, the way of the world, essentially. So that's one aspect of it. But you could argue, I mean, Peter Hitchens made this point on our show, and I find it very persuasive, that it's also about police tactics. If you have 
the situation we have now. I remember when I first came to this country 20 or more than 20 years ago, it was a common occurrence that you'd be walking down the street and there would be a police officer walking towards you who was just patrolling the street. They were just on the street, walking around, creating a visual deterrent to crime. Uh, I have not, I think I probably haven't seen a police officer doing that in years. You, you see police officers going to a crime scene, going from a crime scene, but the idea that you're just walking down the yeah. street in your town and you see a bobby on the beat, I don't think that happens anymore, does it? As I understand it, uh, beat policing is, is not something that uh, the great majority of police officers want to end up doing mm. for, for much of their, their lives. And it isn't always just the government or the Home Secretary. It is something sometimes the police themselves who prefer to be in panda cars than on the beat. Nevertheless, the police do have an argument, which I, I think we ought to take seriously, which is we, we could never have so many police officers that their visibility would be almost everywhere um, cooling and, and, uh, and, 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 and calming and discouraging crime, that, that the numbers involved would be too great. We can find places which are hotspots and make sure there are police officers there, but I'm not sure that numbers of visible policemen um, these days is, is most of the answer. And how much of the responsibility, again, do the Conservative Party need to take with austerity? With the cuts coming in, and particularly the cuts to youth workers, the cuts to youth clubs, you know, a, a lot, a lot of people have actually said that this has been one of the prime reasons why it's, there's been a spike. Mm. I was in favour of austerity, and I, I still am. I think it was necessary. However, I, I think the government, the Conservative, first the coalition, and then the Conservative government, uh, went for the line of least resistance, the easy target, which is local government. Because you can cut local government, and they have, by you know, up to 50%. And the immediate effects uh, don't show. And you say, wow, we're, we're giving them 50% less money, and, and the world carries on. Everything's, everything's the same. And it takes a while uh, because of things uh, like looking, looking after the elderly, uh, looking after young people, youth groups, all kinds of little things that local government does to try to spot where the problems are and to help. When you begin to draw back from those things, it takes a while for it to show, and it is beginning to show, and I think it's a sign that austerity went too quickly for the soft target. So what, in particular, what would you have targeted rather than local government? Because my, my, a lot of my family work in local government and they say the cuts have been absolutely devastating to the point where mm. they can only give the very basic of services and everything else, it's just you simply can't deliver. Well, I, I might have taxed a little bit more, which is a kind of aust austerity. Mm. And uh, I, I, I might have held back on pensions increases. Uh, the... the uh, those of retired age in Britain now, which, which includes me, are no longer the poorest section of, of the community. We are doing pretty well. I, I came here with my, my, my freedom pass, my London freedom pass, elbowing aside younger <laughs> people or unemployed people. I'm, I'm probably earning 10 times what they're earning. So Typical I, Tory. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly so. Uh, so why were you in favour of austerity? Because I don't think that's an argument that, that gets heard very much. Why was it necessary? Uh, and why were you in favour of We were of living it? beyond our means. And you can't live beyond uh, your means forever. 
And how do you, in particular, what was it, could you pinpoint something that, an example of how we were living beyond our means, how we were spending far too much? Well, if you're spending more than, 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 than you're earning, you could, you could look at any item of your expenditure and see that it, w it would need to be reined back. And I, 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 I mentioned pensions as, as one example. Francis is from Venezuela. He's not, <laughs> not, not very good with spending uh, and, uh, and saving. Uh, so it was necessary because we were spending beyond. Uh, that is an argument that I absolutely get, mm. uh, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, I think that's uh, look at our deficit, look at our national debt. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah. And look now at the promises that the Tory leadership candidates have been making. They seem to have completely forgotten what I thought was a core conservative philosophy that we should live within our means. Mm. And so what are they promising? Sorry, Francis. Uh, what, what is it that you're concerned about in terms of the... the well, Boris has been talking about tax cuts for uh, the, the top level, or raising the, the threshold. Mm. He's been talking about uh, more money on education. He's been talking about more money for the police. Jeremy Hunt, I can't remember how many things Jeremy Hunt has probably <laughs> spent a lot more on defence, for mm. instance. I mean, all these are good things. But you, you can't just will good things without willing the means to pay for the good things. Well, you've had your bash at Boris. Uh, what do you make of Jeremy Hunt, just in case he gets elected tomorrow when this video I don't think out? he exists. I think he's a hologram. <laughs> I, 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 I long to just put my hand and see if it goes right through him. I, I don't feel there's a real person mm -hmm. there. Uh, I'm, I suppose I'd have to vote for him because he's, he, he's neither mad uh, nor, nor wicked nor stupid. Uh, he's a, a focused individual, uh, a, a good manager, as far as I can see. But where's where's the personality? Where's the uh, where, where's the the sense of, um, of 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 core values of of principle? He's he seems to shift every time the wind shifts. I was about to say, if you want personality, vote Boris. But then you started talking about values, and I was like, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> Wrong person. <laughs> Wrong person. I didn't say any personality. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting to me that you say that because. Uh, it, I think it shows to what extent politics and particularly choosing a leader of a party or leader of a country is such a visceral animalistic thing almost because I don't I didn't know much about Jeremy Hunt and then I watched the hustings and, and he had this little video talking about his career mm. people talking about what he'd done for them how he he created this business and then he's actually had a very accomplished career mm. he's, he's someone who's created a lot he's start, started companies you know, he he took care of one of the most difficult departments to manage in government, uh, in 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 health, uh, and of course many people criticize him for it. But also he did some good things in that. And yet you look at him and you go, well, you're just a bit bland, and that is enough to condemn someone to essentially not be prime ministerial. Yes, but you 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 could talk to people at the top of many of our service industries, uh, in, in the media. Uh, public relations, all those things. And you will find plenty of Jeremy Hunt-like characters who have done very well and who have worked their way to the top by being bland. He's a smooth operator. Mm. He's definitely a smooth operator and it will get you so far in politics being a smooth operator. And, and he's a hard worker, a very hard worker. And I, I, I went to talk to him about health once when he was health secretary and i i was impressed at the the grip the intellectual grip he has on the whole thing but these are managerial skills and you need managerial skills boris has no managerial skills but you need something more than managerial skills and I, i'm not convinced that he has them but we may see that maybe there's a a new 
butterfly, (laughs) Jeremy Hunt, is going to emerge from the the chrysalis. Mm. Isn't there something to be said, though, that we've, you know, we've done personality politics to death? You know, we've elected somebody who is, you know, know, charismatic or whatever else. Ultimately, what we need now is somebody who can just get the job done. And if that is the case, we have to be pragmatic and we have to just say, you know, Boris, great, he'll make you laugh. You know, if he's a comedian, mm. you get him to close the comedy store and, you know, to have you rolling in the aisles, applause breaks, all the rest of it. But if you want someone to get the job done and be consistent, you don't want a I don't, comedian. I don't disagree with you. The first thing that, that we've, we've got to have is someone who can get things done. I'm a great believer in the value the values of um, public administration, sound public administration. Politicians talk about vision, they talk about change, they talk about being the change, walking the walk, all this kind of crap. Um, (laughs) And um, they they forget that the first thing you have to do is run an extremely complicated state. It's like being the governor of a a, a colony, you have to run things. Mm. And uh, I, I think probably Jeremy Hunt does have those abilities, but I've suggested that in, in order to keep people with you, to keep a nation with you, especially through difficult times, you need something more than that, something in addition to that. And and just going back to Theresa May, because there was a part of me, I've never voted conservative in my life, and you know, but there was a part of me that felt, in the end, quite sorry for her. How bad a job did she do? She did or- a really bad job. And and, and, and and you shouldn't feel <laughs> you shouldn't feel sorry for her. Yeah. I know it's all once people are down, you don't want to yeah. kick them. Yeah. But uh, she what what her big failure was to explain both to her own party and to the British people just how difficult what it was we were trying to do, which was leave the European Union, was going to be. And instead she went storming in at the beginning with all these red lines and promises. And all that was was red meat to the irresponsible right in her own party and it all ran away with her well Matthew on that uh, optimistic note (laughs) uh, we've got time for one more question which is the question that we always ask uh, which is what is the one thing that no one is talking about that we ought to be talking about Um, there there was a a feminist called I think Valerie Solana uh, who said um, the only purpose of men is to produce sperm fortunately we have sperm banks my 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 great fear is that uh, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, Matthew. I didn't see this coming. <laughs> my great radical fear feminists is that are known for their logic and intelligence. Future yeah. generations will notice what the animal world noticed a long time ago, which is that you don't need many males, just enough males to fight with each other to sort of keep evolution going. Mm. But you don't need nearly as many males as you do females, and women haven't noticed this. Uh, all women really would need would be a sperm bank and, and sex toys. They don't need us. And, and we certainly don't need a population which is 50% male. So we're having a marvellous time because no one has noticed that we're unnecessary. Mm. There you go, mate. <laughs> okay. I, I think one of us is going to have to go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're, we're unnecessary. That's it. Uh, shall we that, flip a coin? Yeah, well, that's why I make the tea. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we really appreciate it. You're on Twitter at. I'm. I'm not. You're I'm, not I'm, on no, Twitter. I follow Twitter. Oh, I am. Follow- I'm on it, but I never tweet. Oh, okay. I don't. Ah. Tr- I don't trust myself. You don't trust yourself. Well, <laughs> you don't follow Matthew on Twitter. Then no. just read his column. Uh, it's always very interesting. 
follow us on Twitter. We are on Twitter. Uh, we still feel like we're necessary somewhat. Uh, so follow us at TriggerPod on all the social media and uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel. As always, click the bell button next to the subscribe button. Um, and we will see you in a week from now. And yes, and you've, you always forget. No, it's fine, man. Are you sure? Yeah, it's fine. He's uh, got, he's got I'm going to sell out my show in Edinburgh anyway. It's called All Well That Ends Well. I've sold a lot of tickets already. But if you want to come, please do. Hurry up. Hurry yeah. up, exactly. <laughs> okay. That is a great marketing move. I haven't sold any tickets. No. <laughs> no, 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 he really hasn't. Seriously, <laughs> buy a ticket. I know, I've seen the sales. Anyway, uh, if you want to come and see me, I'm at the Bill Murray Comedy Club in Angel in August and July. Check out, check out the website for details. If you enjoy the show, please share it. Please tell a friend. Leave us a nice review on iTunes, it was particularly if you're in the United States or abroad, because that helps us get global coverage. And uh, that is pretty much it. Thank you so much for watching and listening and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.